I think learning from the past while imagining the future possibilities. Um, I, I strongly believe that most ideas exist out there somewhere, whether it's happened in the past or you can find it in some like weird corner of the internet. Um, so I think just, you know, understanding what else is out there um, and then kind of touches on what I said before, just kind of allowing that to influence your decisions. Everything doesn't have to be so um, orderly and pre-decided. I think we can kind of let some of those things roll. Welcome to Building Ideas, exceptional people discussing inspired experiences that create an enduring impact on our communities. Building Ideas is presented by MSA Design. To learn more about MSA, visit us on the web at www.msaarch.com. Hi, this is Bill. Welcome to Building Ideas Podcast. Really appreciate you spending some time in your life with us this week. If you like what you've been hearing over the past you know, nine months, we ask that you Give us some positive reviews on whatever platform you're listening to. Forward it to a friend. Tell folks you know about us. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, please be sure to rate and like us and leave a positive comment. Um, today is another exciting episode of the Family Series, where we highlight and feature talented designers and leaders within our own firm. And not only um, do we have one person from the firm with us, we have two today, two great talented young architects and designers who are emerging leaders in their profession. Um, and not only in the professional side with us at the office, but they're also both active adjunct faculty in the architectural education realm. And so that's why we wanted to bring them on today. Um, they bring an interesting perspective and interesting ideas. They have a great um, handle on the talent coming out of uh, one of the best architecture and design schools in the country, DAAP at the University of Cincinnati, home of the Bearcats. On top of all that, these two are old friends, former roommates, world travelers, and through a series of recent real estate transactions, apparently they're now neighbors here in the great city of Cincinnati. So Layla Amar and Amber Wazinski join us today on the podcast. Layla is a project architect and designer at MSA and a part-time adjunct faculty for the School of Architecture and Interior Design, DAAP, at the University of Cincinnati, where she also completed her undergraduate Bachelor's of Architecture. She received her Master's of Architecture at the Knowlton School of Architecture at The Ohio State University, home of the Buckeyes, go Bucks, where she was a part of the research and fabrication team for the 2014 U.S. Pavilion at the Venice Architecture Biennale. She spends her, quote, free time as a citizen architect doing advocacy work with the architecture lobby and on the board of her neighborhood's community development corporation, Nest. Amber Zinsky is an interior design and project designer with MSA and part-time adjunct faculty for the School of Architecture Interior Design, DAAP, at the University of Cincinnati. She completed her undergraduate BS in interior design and a Master's of Architecture and International Business Certificate at UC. Her work spans a wide range of content and scales, including domestic and international hospitality and entertainment projects, to work exhibited on two sides of the border, reimagining the Mexico-United States region. She is an NCIDQ certified interior designer and currently working towards architectural licensure. And in her free time, she enjoys any opportunity for outdoor adventures. They're wonderful people, incredibly talented designers, and just really fun to talk to. So it was a not only a joy to learn about what's going on in the architecture education process 
Um, but it was just a great joy to spend some time with them and have a conversation. So welcome to Building Ideas, today's exceptional people, Layla Amar and Amber Wazinski. Architecture wasn't something I really, I guess I didn't really know what an architect was or did um, growing up. I grew up in rural Ohio, Springfield, Ohio. Very rural. Um, first job was picking corn. So <laughs> far cry from the um, urban musings of an architect. But I knew that I wanted to do something related to possibly engineering. And that was kind of just a seed planted in my brain from my engineering father, who is um, is an immigrant to the U.S. and has a certain standard of, of what professions are successful and which ones are a waste of time. And um, engineering was at the top of his list. So where does I was architecture was, fall in that, in that uh, lexicon ranking? I'm not sure he knows that I'm not an engineer. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, he, he, I think has just cataloged it as I'm, I'm just an, a structural engineer, which I definitely am not, but um, he knows it has something to do with buildings and somewhat still technical, but doesn't get all the create creative side of it quite yet. Um, but I thought I was going to go to school for engineering. I uh, set up a visit to the university of Cincinnati with their engineering program. And it was on that tour that I kind of was just talking to one of their representatives about my interests, uh, how I sketch our house and random furniture. I would like design shelves that, you know, I wasn't actually able to build, but thought of in my head. So they suggested uh, that I consider the architecture program at UC just because it's a hard program to get into and that the credits would transfer easily to any other program. So it'd be easier to start in architecture and go to engineering rather than vice versa. So mm -hmm. on a whim, I just applied into the architecture program and I got in. I didn't look back after that. I'm kind of a somebody who once I start on a path, if I want to change my mind, I'll change my mind after I cross the finish line so that I can catalog it as did that and I'll keep moving. So started at UC and that's when I met Amber. We, we were on the same floor of the same dorm, but in different studio sections. So we didn't really get to know each other as much um, freshman year, but uh, ended up as roommates and um, went on a study abroad. I think it was our third year together um, to Paris. There's um, a lot of smiles in that picture right yeah. now. Yeah. No stories, please. No stories. <laughs> Yeah, I guess that's my journey of how I came to architecture. All right, how about you, Amber, Dayton kid? I am a Dayton kid. Actually, originally a Michigan kid. I was born in uh, Westland, Michigan, right outside of Detroit. So all my all my extended family's up there. Um, and I actually, it's funny because I, I was also influenced by my parents to get into architecture. Um, I was initially interested in interior design uh, because I was really into art. So, you know, like art and gym class were my favorite in high school. So, um, yeah, I just wanted to continue basically taking painting classes. And I was like, this is something, you know, professional that I can do, but I can still do art. Um, and my parents were like, you know, you should do architecture. That's, you know, more of a professional career. Um, so I ended up going to UC because I could kind of do both or the interior design and architecture programs were related. So. 
I should include that I my undergrad is actually in interior design. Um, we were combined at UC, so that's how I got to know Layla. Um, and, and my plan actually was to maybe switch over to architecture in undergrad, and I just ended up really loving interior design. Um, graduated from UC in 2013 and then worked for three years as an interior designer. And I was still undecided when I graduated if I wanted to go back to grad school for architecture. And kind of after that two-year mark, I was like, if I don't do it now, I'm never going to do it. And so took the plunge and yeah. And here you are. So um, who's your biggest inspiration as a designer? Who are some key designers or uh, influencers in the field who inspire you individually? When you say somebody who influences me, um, I actually think about some educators I had. Um, so I went to grad school at Ohio State and um, Rob Livesey was the director of the program while I was there and also ended up being my mentor uh, through my exit review process. And his approach to design and especially with students was that there's so many lenses to look at design through. And he never came to the table with um, a really specific agenda, but more uh, that the design problem and interests that were in the mix, whether that be, you know, the students' interests or interests that come from a specific program or, you know, more professionally, the interests of a client, that those are kind of what cultivate a specific design approach. And when it comes to thinking about um, who influences me or inspires me as a designer, that question becomes a lot harder because I do think of things as um, not so uh, one track and that, that mm -hmm. there's so many ways to take this. So I'm inspired by so many different designers um, for a lot of different reasons. But I think Rob influenced my thinking on design in a way that still impacts me today. I don't think I can narrow it down to just one. So I'll give um, an example, I think, in each category. So I I always loved during the co-op program at UC and, and even in um, my professional career too, after I graduated from undergrad, um, just having the opportunity to sit down and I made it a practice. I would always ask like three different people that I worked with that I was really interested in what they did and um, how they worked and just ask them out to lunch and, um, you know, ask them about their stories. So I, I found a lot of really great mentors through that uh, process. And um, so, yeah, I think there's a level of being inspired or interested in uh, what people do when you work with them face to face every day. Um, if I was going to name one uh, famous architect or interior designer or group, I think it would be Diller, Scofidio, and Renfro. Uh, I touched on that I loved the art portion of interior design and architecture. And so I think they were a firm that actually started out doing a lot of um, art-based projects. And then that evolved into all of those projects that we know today. So like the Highline, um, some of these really like crazy things that are world-renowned. Um, so I, I just love their approach to um, the understanding the performance of design and how people understand the space as as almost a type of performance. Um, and then lastly, some educators. I, I loved having, um, and honestly, they probably don't even know they influenced me this much, but um, Ed Mitchell is mm -hmm. the director at UC and he was my thesis advisor. And one of his previous students I had for a studio at UC 
And um, I just really love their approach to teaching and interacting with the students. I really felt like they they tried to meet you halfway, like they were so interested in the work that was going on that it made me even more interested in it and more motivated. Um, so that's something that I try to bring to um, the work that I do and, and the teaching that I do too, that I learned from them. What led you into wanting to be in architectural education as a kind of faculty member? Start with you, Amber. That's a tough question because that was actually something that I had never thought about until probably my last year or two of grad school. Mm -hmm. uh, it was almost by accident, I would say. It was just I knew a lot of the professors at UC from going there for undergrad, and I had a really good relationship with Ed and some of the other professors towards the end there. Um, and so it, it, it kind of was just a natural progression. I wouldn't say it was something that I had initially sought out. Um, but I will say, I think like having Carolina and Ed and some of the other professors towards the end of my grad school, um, Vince is another one there. Um, it, it made me more interested in teaching because of how good of an experience I had learning alongside them. How about you, Layla? I think I had a notion that it's something I wanted to do while I was in grad school. I truly don't think I really started enjoying architecture until grad school, um, at least in the way that I feel like I enjoy it now. Um, and at that point, it was kind of the conversations and ideas around architecture that excited me in a way that I didn't understand or, or really uh, engage in as much in undergrad. So I think I was by the time I was finishing grad school, I was a little bit on the high of the enjoyment of all of the energy around design conversations that it felt um, like it would be very abrupt to, to leave that behind and uh, only be part of practice. And having been part of the co-op program in undergrad, I knew that there was a big difference in the day-to-day -day life of practice and academia. And that's something that that's maybe where the the seed started but then i did go out and just practice for a few years um and wasn't sure if i'd teach or where i'd teach but the fact that i landed in cincinnati and stayed in cincinnati um longer than i thought i was going to uh, which now it's definitely home and where i want to be uh kind of same as amber i was surrounded by a lot of others that were teaching because a lot of my friends are of similar mind want to talk about these things and it's not just you know a nine to five leave it at work but we're interested in why we do what we do and so even happy hours i'd end up meeting up with a bunch of people who were adjunct faculty and they'd be talking about teaching all the time and i just kind of got pulled into the fold so it, it, it chose me a little bit, but I, I definitely had interest in it. How in the heck have you done architectural education, which is so hands-on, right? Studio culture of Beaux-Arts traditions and all that. How the heck, and I'll keep it clean, have you done this over pandemic virtually? There's a lot to that. I mean, there's the technical side of it, but there's also the social connection to students because you know, they, you you want them to have a certain relationship and trust with you when it comes to the culture of critique and <laughs> not yeah. feeling 
torn apart and then closing their computer and being uh, completely uh, disconnected from you in that way. So I don't know about you, Amber, but I, I do feel like it's really hard to make the social connection with them. But I require all of my students to have their cameras on and I know that it annoys them on some days and honestly some days I don't want to turn my camera on either but I think the more we see each other's faces and actually can see each other's reactions it, it just is more personable mm. certainly and I think I think even more important actually than the tools because I think there's a positive side to working so digitally um there's definitely some things that I think we've all learned, but yeah, the social side is definitely tough because not only do we want to have a relationship with the students, but I think we all know like the benefit of being in a studio like environment where they actually become comfortable with each other and have more of a social connection and it's easier for them to throw ideas back and forth. And that's, I think, really challenging over. So I think that's something that hasn't really been solved as far as the digital technology though that we use we use a program called miro we use one called mm -hmm. Control for a while um it's basically a digital pinup space and you're familiar with it bill yep. been, um using that at the office as well which i think has proven beneficial both in professional and academic realms yeah. when i'm having a conversation with a student and talking to them while directly sketching on their work in a way that stays the same way if we were sketching on trace paper over their drawings at their desk, that's beneficial. And it's not the one-to-one, -one, uh, you know, it's not the exact same as being in person, but it's, it's pretty close as far as that feedback loop. So that helps. Mm. The hardest part for me with reviewing work digitally has been physical models. Uh, yeah. I think the physical model process is super important in design and it's not something I've been willing to just let go because we're learning remotely. Mm -hmm. So I'm instead hoping that I can push them to make more creative choices, by using not as uh, curated material selections because not every student has access to the same materials or space to work in. So one student might have a full shop in their basement at their parents' house and another student might be in a small bedroom with five other roommates and don't have anywhere to build this model but their bed. And so yeah. trying to reinforce that the model process, at least for studio right now, isn't about presentation, but about design. And I, yeah. yeah, you can Photoshop out the glue this time and that's okay. It's more about working through ideas. Mm. Yeah, see, I actually, I feel a little bit differently about it. I think one of the benefits to working so digitally is that then they do, they have to pick a view of that model and they have to present it in a way that is professional or at least, you know. Um, it looks good, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Something that it is and can go in their portfolios. So I think for them, it almost streamlines the process a little bit. So you could argue about whether you lose out on some of the design effort in that. But I think, you know, in a world where there's so many things that you're trying to teach them in such a compressed space of time, it's kind of nice that they already, it is already portfolio ready and they're thinking about that from day one. Are they doing any in-person at all at DAP as far as studio or meetings or classes or is it all remote? 
For SAID, which is architecture and interior design, I don't think anybody's doing anything in person. Really? However, wow. their facilities, are, I think, are available. So if somebody wanted to use the rapid prototyping center or pick up books at the yeah. library, that's available. Yeah, but studios are closed, right? Correct. Wow, that's crazy. I know a couple schools are doing it. Some aren't. Um, it's interesting. So what have you, the two of you, you've been doing this for a while now. How has it impacted your professional practice being so regularly engaged with students? Because um, they're obviously different worlds, right? I mean, we try to be creative at the firm, right? And do the best we can. But, you know, it's, you know, you got to flash things. They got to drain, right? You got a civil engineering plan to coordinate, right, Layla? Those are <laughs> just Amber. as fun. <laughs> <laughs> sure they are. They get those wall details, Amber, right? And all that stuff. So talk about how that for each of you individually as designers and professionals the 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 foot in one right you're in one camp and then you're mostly in the professional side but you know, you're you're in the academia side as well how does that influence you individually start with you amber i think it's influenced me in um more day-to-day -day ways like um just i'm constantly like researching for the studios that i'm teaching and so i'll come across things that i think are interesting that i can bring into my work um, whether that's like design concepts or even just like ways to represent things, ways to draw things. Um, so I think that overlaps. And then as far as just personal skills in general, being a um, younger member of the professional community, I think it's really helpful to have that experience where you're actually the leader and trying to, you know, corral these young kids. I assume it's similar for you, Bill, at a MSA sometimes. So. I'm just trying to get through the day, Amber. I'm no, just kidding. No, but yeah, so I think, um, you know, it translates on multiple levels. Yeah. How about you, Layla? I'd agree with all of that. I also think that one of the shifts that happens when we go to professional practice outside of, you know, after we finish our four years of undergrad and two plus years of grad school is we leave the critique culture behind a little bit, you know, it's still, mm -hmm. it still goes forward, but it changes because there's hierarchy now. It's uh, it's a different kind of hierarchy than exists in a studio environment where it's the professor and then everybody else. Um, and in a work environment, that hierarchy gets a lot more complicated. And I think people don't always know how or if they should be provoking ideas or just going with what they're told. And I really enjoy critique culture and I don't take any offense to critique personally, at least when it comes to design. I mean, <laughs> there's other things I don't want criticized, I suppose. Um, <laughs> but I think that that's how we elevate our work. And I, I don't think that, um, you know, looking at somebody else's work and giving ideas of other possibilities and ways to look at it is ever a bad thing. So when it comes to how to bring that into the professional environment, um, you know, working on a project with a pretty large team at MSA, trying to get everybody to feel a sense of responsibility and uh, just an environment where I want to know what you think I'm not going to tell you exactly what has to be done, but here are my thoughts and I want yours too. 
how has studio culture, I know I'm a, a little older than you guys, just a little bit, quite a bit, but um, it used to be kind of this fraternity of just and sorority, you know, whatever I'd say fraternity in a gender well, neutral way. Well, you'd be right. There's definitely, there probably was uh, even more male dominated when you were going through school. Wasn't as much. You'd be surprised. I mean, it certainly is, is much more, I think, equal now. It was probably about a third of the students when we were there were uh, women uh, at, at Ball State because Indiana's pretty traditional state, if you know what I mean. It's pretty white bread. I will, I will cut this out. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to piss off. Yeah. Anyways, I got some great <laughs> stories. But so there was uh, historically the studio culture was this kind of intense all hours there all the time. The design students were kind of in their wacky little building, whatever campus, whether it's UC, Miami, you know, Boston, whatever. Is that, you know, stepping aside from pandemic, right, in a normal culture? Is it still that way? Has it settled down? Because I've heard different reports from different schools and different faculties that it's kind of been watered down or that sense of camaraderie has lessened. What's it like now outside of the pandemic? Not counting the past year. I only taught one. I only taught one semester before um, <laughs> pandemic, where we were actually in person. But I was, you know, very recently in grad school, and um, I don't think that that has been watered down at, at all, as in terms of just the amount of time people spend in studio and that camaraderie between students. I mean, I had a great relationship with a lot of the people that I was in grad school with and we were there all the time and we brought a ping pong table in. So like people were hanging out there, other yeah. people were working on stuff. Um, you know, I guess younger people these days too, a lot of people in my class had like video games. So it was like, I don't know, are you, you know, playing video games or working on architecture, but either way, it doesn't really matter. You know, they're still there. Yeah. Um, so I don't, but I, but I have heard that some of the schools, Harvard or Yale, um, some of those have been, more focused on um, mental health of students. So I think they're trying to get more out of their students while not, you know, burning them out so heavily mentally. So I have heard that as a trend, but as far as like the camaraderie of students being there, I think that's still alive and well. Yeah. You think so, Layla? Same way? Well, I guess the ideas of uh, the badge of honor that we uh, maybe had about how many all-nighters you spent. I never bought into that as a student anyway. Yeah. I was really annoyed by it. I It didn't mean that you had to work any less, but I always felt that there were students that were there, like Amber said, maybe playing video games or distracting me <laughs> yeah. that, um, that were still wearing that badge of honor of how little they slept. And I think there is more of an awareness now of that, you know, we shouldn't be valued by just our hours of labor and uh, how how much of a zombie we can turn ourselves into. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that it's any less work. I just think that there's maybe a little bit better awareness, um, even connected to kind of larger conversations outside of school and, and conversations of labor in professional environments of what is a healthy line to have. Sure, sure. You know, as you as you all look back at your undergrad and graduate experiences yourself, now your faculties, professionals, what are some of the issues, if any, have changed since you started in your education 
What are some of the issues that are coming to the forefront as you're going through projects and working with different students of all backgrounds? Are there common themes that people are bringing up that are maybe new issues? You know, when I was a, a young pup in design school, sustainability was really coming. I mean, nobody gave a crap about it before the early 90s. And then there was a real push. And so a lot of my peers were you're kind of the first generation collectively where that was a, a part of a profession, which I think now it's integral. But what are some issues you see kind of coming to the forefront as you're working with young students? I think definitely social justice issues. I think you could almost compare that to some of the big waves of sustainability. Um, and that, I think that gets really challenging just because as Layla had alluded to earlier, there's just so many different people of different backgrounds. Um, I think as professors, we, there's a big conversation around and we've tried to, um, you know, I think that issue shows up in multiple ways. So like one of them is just in the information that we present to students. So I think typically what we were taught, it was all the old white male modernist architects, right? That was like the information that was available and shown to you in lectures and classes. And oh yeah, oh yeah, and, the dead yeah. German guys, right? Who came over in the war and yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I had some of those. I had some of those. <laughs> I got some stories, but we'll sidebar that. But save those. We're so, keeping yeah. this in the podcast, but we're going to keep this dialogue in. This will be fun. Keep going. <laughs> Um, yeah, and just shown as, as precedents in studio and all that. And so I think we've even tried to, you know, I think a lot of that stuff is just ingrained in us just because that's what we were taught to. And so I find myself having to really research and stretch outside of my comfort zone of what I think I know about architecture and just understand that not only is it just the different people that you're working with, but also there are all these other narratives that were going on around the world besides like, you know, modernism or even postmodernism or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, so just trying to reach to, to share and find out some of that information. Um, and then of course there's like the social justice issues as they apply to the, the projects that the students are actually working on. Um, mm -hmm. That age old question I think of like, can architecture actually solve any of these problems? How much should we be involved? Um, I think it's a huge conversation happening right now. Mm -hmm. How about you, Layla? I'd agree. It, the different topics related to social justice um, have, been on, uh, you know, we are increasingly aware of that the changes we can make. And um, even as Amber said, just in conversation or the information presented, not necessarily even in design solutions, but what is everybody exposed to? Whose work are we exposed to? But because of that, I also think um, topics related to development and so real estate development have become more important. I didn't really learn anything about real estate development in my education. I did go on to work for a developer for a little bit. Um, and I think it's so important for architects to understand the framework that we work within. I think it's yep. something like 80% of uh, new construction is uh, development work. And understanding what that means. So especially we're if we're talking about social justice or um, affordable housing or how development might impact gentrification or what kind of what kind of model can create sustainable sustainable development and not necessarily 
just green sustainable, but socially sustainable for a neighborhood to produce growth and um, gain economic growth without displacing and how architecture actually fits into that equation. And I think the thing is, is it's always part of that equation, but we don't realize necessarily mm -hmm. our voice in the conversation. And a lot of developers, I think, are um, also shifting their thinking to these new conversations. And so if we have agency at the table with those, I think it's important for architects to realize what what they're contributing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Hold on just a second. What's up, buddy? <laughs> Ask your mom if you can have a root beer. We'll wait till your mom gets back. Come, come here, say hi to Miss Miss Amber and Miss Layla. Hello. This is Wes. I keep moving. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, he just wants a root beer. Nope. Talk to mom. I'm different. Now, I, I think that's a great back to that point. I think it's really interesting. Bring that up, Layla. There's, and you know that from your professional experience, you know, before you came to our practice, there is so much of a monetary framework that it's important for architects to understand um, how the buildings have to fit into it, right? I mean, because ultimately, if they can't be funded, it ain't getting built. Right. Um, and um, it's almost, in my experience back in the day, right? <laughs> back in the day. I had no clue. I still don't really have a clue. I mean, I'm learning over 25 years, but I think it's so important to have that dialogue so people understand, right? That Yeah, and it's almost like you just have to at, at least be able to understand the conversation because it's a completely different lingo and lexicon, and yeah. you can be left in the dust in that conversation if you don't know what they're even really negotiating. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think within the context of that, you can also have tremendous influence on that project, an architectural design perspective, as long as you can, I don't want to say justify, right? But fit the concept within the context of that funding strategy. Right. And I also think um, outside of the design context, architects understanding the bigger issues at play because it is about it's all about the dollar at the end of the day if the project can't get built it's not going to get built um but where those financial sources come from and the people who advocate for like affordable housing subsidies usually aren't architects but maybe they'd listen to a group of architects more than they would a community that's in need yeah interesting any thoughts on that amber from your perspective yeah, I mean, what's exciting to me, I think, is thinking about UC, um, at least the SAID, ADAP, um, is trying to create some connections with the real estate department at UC also. And so mm -hmm. I definitely think that's something that is changing in architectural education. Um, it's almost like everyone is kind of still like reshuffling and trying to find their seat at the table. Um, I definitely think it is something that has been apparent even in some of the studios that have been taught to. It's just more of a um, an understanding of like our place in the development process too. I think the like older method of education was like you have this grand idea, this main concept, and you go out and you like find this person who is going to pay you to do it, and that's really in a lot of cases not the case. 
and so I think there's more understanding. Oh no, it's not. <laughs> now. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. You know, I think it's you know I'm on the professional advisory board at the architecture department at Ball State, and they actually reorganized. They now have, believe it or not, interior design was not in the College of Architecture. It was in like the Home Economics College. It's a long, uh, it's a long story. No, that's they actually, schools, yeah. And then, and also construction management was in the Home Economics, which they dissolved that whatever it was called. But they actually brought construction management and interior design now, along with architecture, landscape, and planning. And they're actually having joint studios. So you may be in a studio with a CM student. I mean, imagine, imagine sitting down with a third-year construction management student and working on an interdisciplinary studio where they're helping you, Layla, understand the framework, right, of the built you know, cost and development. And I think it's a really, really strong idea to make it more integrated. And I'm, and I'm glad to hear that UC is thinking about those things as well. So, Yeah, and it's it's something that I see other faculty, like we're all kind of learning with the shift in thinking. Yeah. Um because it, like I said, I didn't learn, I didn't learn about development in my education. And I think a lot of my peers teaching didn't either, but yeah. now we're trying to bring that information to our students. And so we're going through a learning curve as to, like Amber said, what is our role in the bigger picture? Sure. And, um, I think that's a ongoing and, um, interesting conversation. How important is it? I'm going to put you on the spot because I'm sure some of your colleagues are going to listen to this and not agree with your answer. How important is it for architecture design educators to have some professional practice, ongoing current experience while they're teaching? Go. Mm, tough question. I mean, obviously I've chosen to do both. So I do think it's important. However, um, you can't, totally like somebody has to be putting together the curriculum somebody you know like i still learn a lot from some of the professors that have been there forever do you know uh hank hildebrandt i don't I, I i don't know a whole lot of the uc fat i know some folks oh but, that's right uh, i forgot your ball state um so anyways but he's, been, he's been at uc for a long time um and and i think there's something to gain from those people who just really understand education, um, especially when you're talking about an organization that big. Like I have no idea how to push an idea through and get something done at UC. There's so much red tape. Um, so even from that perspective, mm -hmm. uh, do I think that we definitely bring our own strengths by practicing and teaching? Yeah, sure. for sure. Mm -hmm. But it, you know, it's like anything, um, working at a firm or working on a team, everyone brings those different things to the table, so. Like the uh, good old slogan, there's no right, right way to eat a Reese's. <laughs> I think there's no right way to be a teacher. I, I personally like that UC has, or at least SAID's program has a lot of different types of professors, some that have always been practicing while they're teaching, some that have mostly only taught, some that are coming from a very like theoretical or kind of digital perspective, um, maybe a, a futuristic look at architecture. I think it's nice to have a diverse faculty when it comes to that. Personally, I wanted to practice before teaching or that's what I chose to do. And I don't think I would ever um, 
consider teaching and not practicing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm with you. I, I think it's important to have a fair balance at any college of practitioners and academics. I lean a little more towards the practitioner side, but that's just, what do I matter? Just a middle-aged white guy in the Midwest, right? There's lots of us <laughs> out here. Um, and if you're going by my uh, dad's way of thinking, when I started teaching some classes, he was like, well, those who can't do teach. So <laughs> <There's> <laughs> yeah, I've heard that from my folks too. <laughs> yeah, I've heard that in the past, but no, I think it's, it's good to have a balance. Um, tell me about, and I'm, I'm going to put you on the spot. I'm not going to let you waffle on this one, Layla. I'm not going to let you dance around it because I know you'll give me more than one answer. One answer. What is the best, you don't tell me the student. What's the best student project you've ever seen that you've been, or one of the best, give me an example. You don't have to tell me who the student is, but like a project that describe a great student project that you've seen. <sighs> ah, got you both. I don't believe in superlatives. Uh, <laughs> so I'm definitely going to waffle. Of course you're going to waffle. I know it. You know I was calling you out. Um, <laughs> You know, so I haven't been teaching very long and the work that I've seen, it's, it's second year and third year student work. The design ideas are usually almost there. And what we've been doing is we've been doing multiple projects in a semester. So, you know, most of these projects are about four weeks long and ideas are kind of half-baked. So the project themselves, uh, you know, I don't know if I could say that I've seen something that just like changed my life, but the drawings, uh, what is produced, the actual artifacts from students, I've had some pretty impressive stuff. Um, And I couldn't venture to describe why uh, maybe a certain model or drawing was so impressive, but I am evading the question 100%. And I can't put a, I can't put a pin on the best student project I've ever seen. (laughs) Like a, like a good professor would always avoiding giving a straight (laughs) answer in design school. All right. Your shot, Amber. I know you're going to give me the same, but I'll at least give you a shot to try to answer this. Um, one I have never been able to forget about, and I can't, this is not one of my students. So again, I'm evading the, the real question. Cause they're listening. (laughs) (laughs) But I think, and I can't even remember his name. This is like a couple years ago. Um, but one uh, student, I think it was like a thesis or a capstone project out of um, the, uh, you might have to help me out, Layla. What's the school in London, the AA or something? Yeah, AA. Yeah. Um, so it, it was like a final project for that. And this, it was just this really crazy, like futuristic um, film project about this like totally imaginary world that was like really crazy and wild. Um, but also made you kind of like believe that it could happen in some alternate universe. So I, I kind of like those like crazy ones that just take advantage of the fact that you're in school and, um, makes you think about your own world differently. But, um, yeah, I, I would echo Layla just in that I I haven't been teaching long enough, I think to have, (laughs) of my own students work. You never know. Somebody might be like, Oh, let me tell you, but okay. <laughs> a little bit different subject in your, you, you both have traveled right internationally mm-hmm. in your experiences so far mm-hmm. in all those travels, because we're architects, we had a gig out on buildings from time to time. Right. I know you're both an interior designer and an architect, Amber, Layla, you're an architect, both designers, both there's no blur, you know, there's no exact line. 
What is the most magnificent building or space you've ever visited? And I need one. Oh, I would say the Sagrada Familia. I love that. <sighs> it's on my um, list. Yeah, spent a week in Barcelona uh, during that trip Layla mentioned earlier. It was We had a portion of the trip where we could travel individually. Um, and so spent a week in Barcelona, went there. Um, literally, like I didn't think that that was possible, but my eyes teared up. Maybe it was just a gorgeous day or maybe the, the building is that beautiful. Um, but just the way that the light comes in through the stained glass windows, I, I absolutely loved. I have known people who are agnostic or atheists say they went into that building and wept as if it was a religious experience. Mm -hmm. And I've never been. It's on my list. So I'm not even really into like that type of architecture, but it uh -huh. was, like, yeah, a beautiful yeah. space. And it's great to feel that way when there's so many people around too, right? It's like a tourist mm -hmm. attraction. Um, so yeah, crazy. Absolutely. Layla. So me. on travel i'd say one of the most inspiring spaces i've seen or, or i guess maybe it's just one of the most memorable um for both its interior vo volumetric quality and also how it's positioned in its urban context but brunelleschi's duomo in florence mm -hmm. um it just yep it's the, you know, it pulls you back no matter where you are in the city. It just has a presence and also the, like I said, the, the volumetric experience within the dome is, is amazing and the story behind it is amazing. But, you know, I actually think without traveling, Cincinnati has some of my favorite buildings. Um, the CAC, uh, mm -hmm. the on, on campus is one of my favorite buildings. Hmm. Cool. All right. And your uh, are we well, allowed to throw questions back at you? You can. Hey, it's your show. I'm just here in my basement <laughs> talking in a pandemic. Shooting are breeze to my favorite people. All right. What's up? Yeah. What's, what's, your, what's your favorite building? Most important. Um, my favorite building is the uh, Christian Theological Seminary in Indianapolis. Edward Larrabee Barnes, another old white guy. Um, but it is. Uh, I went through it. Not many people know about it. It's very 70s. It's part of Butler. They have a the Protestant denomination, Disciples of Christ, which is based in India. It's a small, you know, it's one of those kind of pile of Methodist Presbyterian kind of groups. But they uh, they have their their headquarters in Indianapolis, and their seminary was built, I think, in the late 60s. It might have been mid-60s, late 60s. I'll have to look at the exact year it was done. But it is the most, it is just a beautiful 1970s kind of cloistered campus and has this amazing kind of brutalist modern chapel and so i was thinking about going into landscape and getting out and i was down there because you know ball state tends to go to indianapolis and columbus indiana you know and i remember going on a tour and i was like all right i'm being an architect and so whenever we you know we've done some work at butler over the years not a whole lot but whenever i go to indianapolis and get a chance i always go to visit the building and now butler's kind of taken over the the building then I mean, they still have it the seminaries there but it's part of butler now too so it's look it up it's a really cool very 70s it's on a bluff overlooking the river um, but it's a really neat and it's detailed exquisitely like the details unbelievable kind of like an im pay level kind of baseboards i mean it's very 70s but it's it's just it's it's wonderful so for me that's the one can i add a second place uh yes. based yes. on what What's you just said medalist? What's yeah, silver medal. Um, so you talking about um, brutalism reminded me of seeing Oscar Niemeyer's 
French Communist Party headquarters in Paris. I've not seen that. It's it's really I I don't know. It it has these moments of amazement, but also just um, it's a fun it's a fun composition. It's a fun building um, and one that I enjoyed while we were in Paris quite a bit. Oh, look at that. I just popped it up. I've seen. Yeah, I know this one. That's awesome. Is it still the headquarters or is it something else now? That's a question I do not know the answer to. It's a fun fact. You can people people can dig that up. But yeah, for me that's the one. And then um, I think in Europe, I don't know. Um, Zuomo was pretty powerful. I agree. I got stuck on top of the Campanile when the bells rang. We were up there on a tour. That was pretty scary and pretty pretty magical when the whole building's shaking. You know, and then the whole thing's rocking and the bells are buzzing below your feet. And There's a fine line between scary and magical. <laughs> well, yeah. You know, you're like, I'm on this medieval tower 15 stories up and it's on heavy timber clad with stone. What is going on? So the Rodhus Oslo, Norway City Hall. Amanda and I went there well, 20 years ago now. We went on a trip and uh, went to Scandinavia and uh, look it up. It was like early 1900s. Pretty cool stuff. Very kind of Art Nouveau, early modern, but anyways. That's a region I've not been to that I definitely have on my list. You should go. It's amazing. All right. So one of the things we talk about is enduring impact. You guys have been very patient dishing with me for an hour. If, and whoever wants to go first can go first. If you could give advice to an organization, company, individual, collective, whatever, on how to have an impact, what would it be? Have an enduring impact, excuse me. <laughs> You're both speechless. I can't believe I got you both on that. You're both <laughs> looking into the sky like, I didn't think about that. Is this organization an architecture organization? No, not architecture, <laughs> anything. So say you're a world-class guru, leadership guru, advisor of, of wisdom, a deliverer of advice, what would it be? Check your ego at the door and move with intent. Um, as far as egos go, I think we all know architects have them. Um, <laughs> there's you know, the thing we call the God complex while we're out here impacting our built environment with large swaths of our pens or CAD, whatever, um, that we have to realize how many people our work impacts. And so if I extrapolate that, not just to architects and think about just leaders in our world, it's are the decisions you make, the more power you have, the less it is about you, the more power you have, the less it's about you because you are trying to you're in power probably to solve other people's issues. So I think we all got to leave our egos at the door. It's not about us. It's about the problems we have to solve. And how do we solve them? Usually through collaboration and (laughs) an ego can really get in the way of that. And (laughs) moving with intent, even sometimes uh, not knowing what what your intent is, the intent can emerge and then you have to latch on to it. But um, when it comes to designing, I always tell my students, every line has to have intent. So if you're drawing everything orthogonally and one line is 
angled, I am assuming that was a decision that you made and not an accident. And then if it was an accident or it just happened, we then embed intent and, and post-rationalize what it's giving us to keep it or to edit it out. So I think uh, I am always thinking about editing um, our decisions and not just kind of letting things happen. But if they do just happen, realizing what it gives us or what it takes from us. Excellent. All right, Amber, what's your wisdom? Yeah, that was great. I I wanted to comment on a couple of things Layla said too. Um, I, I agree. I love a leader who listens. I feel like that's part of like what you were saying too, is just um, being able to listen to people. Um, and it's funny because I actually feel the opposite about the, the level of intent. I love a happy accident and sometimes I love the joy and just like something not having to mean something. Um, so, but anyways, I was going to say um, that I think learning from the past while imagining the future possibilities. Um, I, I strongly believe that most ideas exist out there somewhere, whether it's happened in the past or you can find it in some like weird corner of the internet. Um, so I think just, you know, understanding what else is out there um, and then kind of touches on what I said before, just kind of allowing that to influence your decisions that everything doesn't have to be so um, orderly and pre-decided. I think we can kind of let some of those things roll. All right. Um, what are you excited about right now, Amber, moving forward? Oh, what am I excited about? Getting out of the pandemic. Um, I just uh, came back from Florida. So if you had asked me a week ago, I would have said I just needed to do like something fun and get away. But I did just do that. Um, so, yeah, I'm excited to get out and, and see some people. Mm -hmm. Layla, what are you excited about? Absolutely the same thing. I am... I'm an extroverted introvert. I enjoy my time alone, but I need, uh, I, I thrive off of conversation and collaboration and I miss being able to, you know, quickly pass sketches to other people or just vibe off of other people in the office. So I can't wait to be back in a collaborative, physically together space. Preach. I can't wait either. Awesome. Well, this has been good stuff. Um, we're going to get a great episode out of this. I appreciate you guys coming on and talking about being educators and um, thanks for all you do. And I can't wait to see you in person again at some point, whenever that is. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for letting us just uh, talk about the stuff we love. Thanks. Perfect. This is fun. Thank you for joining us on today's podcast. Building Ideas is presented by MSA Design. To learn more about MSA Design, visit us on the web at www.msaarch.com.